They shall proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Hello, and thanks for listening to the Shoreline Church Podcast. You're listening to Doxology, a sermon series through seven essential psalms. For more audio and theological content, visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's make our way to our seats. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll get a Bible to you. If you have a smartphone, I encourage you to open to uh, the YouVersion Bible app. We have an event uh, called Shoreline Church, and uh, we have quotes and verses that you can add to your own personal notes. Uh, We today come again to the Lord's table. And I think in light of um, the mass shootings that happened yesterday in El Paso, and again on the news this morning in Ohio, uh, we want to just quickly, um, with, without really anything prepared, just say we tacitly reject any and all forms of racism. Uh, we uh, look at um, the scriptures for Uh, the definition of humanity. We look at the scriptures that tell us that uh, there's one race, the human race, and when we look in the book of Revelation, we see uh, from every nation, tribe, and tongue, uh, there will be worshipers before the throne of God. And so we, uh, in these times of crisis, in these times of darkness, as we prayed with our team this morning, we have the answer, uh, and it's the gospel. Uh, It's not psychology. It's not the wisdom of this world. The answer that the church has is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in these dark and desperate times, uh, I want to remind us uh, not to be political, uh, but to be spiritual, to be biblical, okay? So I want to just say a prayer for uh, our country and the situation that's happening uh, this weekend. As many are grieving uh, and trying to process, many of them, why would God allow uh, suffering like this? So uh, bow your heads with me and we'll pray. Father, we thank you that you uh, sent your son who was acquainted with sorrow, uh, who, as we'll learn in just a few moments, bore um, the wrath of God in his body on the tree and was um, stricken and smitten uh, for our sakes. And so, Lord, as many today are grieving, both in El Paso and in Ohio, Uh, from these mass shootings, Lord, we ask, Lord, that you would be their comfort, that you would come into those very real and dark situations, and you would bring hope uh, in the midst of despair. You would turn uh, mourning into dancing, sackcloth and ashes into uh, just uh, the oil of gladness, that you today would be um, sufficient. Lord, we pray for the churches in those uh, regions that are dealing with uh, the tragedies that have happened, and Lord, we pray for our country, that you would draw Uh, men and women, back to the faith, back to Jesus, that you would do that drawing work. So, uh, Lord, we are in dark days indeed, but we thank you that in the midst of darkness, the light shines even brighter. So, Lord, would you allow the church to rise up and proclaim the gospel, even today as we study this passage, be with us. We ask it in the name that matters, the name that is above every name, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, it's always a wonderful opportunity for those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of God's Lamb, Jesus, uh, to come and partake of the bread and the cup and join together um, in our various 
uh, kind of families as one family uh, at the table of the Lord. And it's really no accident that, and it wasn't pre-planned, it's no accident though that we come to, of all the Psalms, as we look at the Lord's table today, communion, we are in Psalm 22. As we've been mining the vast treasures that we call the Psalms, today we arrive at one of the most awe-inspiring and important passages in all of Holy Scripture. This morning we are in Psalm 22, so please turn in your Bibles or swipe to Psalm 22. Martin Luther said this about this Psalm. He said, this is a kind of gem among the Psalms, and it's peculiarly excellent and remarkable, if I can get through my language here. It contains those deep, sublime, and heavy sufferings of Christ when agonizing in the midst of terrors and pangs of divine wrath and death, which surpasses all human thought and comprehension. Wow. Uh, Charles Spurgeon said of Psalm 22, there is none like it, for if there be holy ground anywhere in Scripture, it's in this psalm. So to be frank with you, I feel very inadequate to open the Scriptures to even spend a minute, uh, let alone 40 minutes, diving into this. Psalm 22 is known as a psalm of lament. As psalms of lament are songs where the psalmist is not sugarcoating his situation. He's not cleaning up his frustration and agony and kind of making it appropriate for Sunday school. He, he's bringing an individual or a communal complaint to God, and he's crying out for God to intervene. So songs of lament are actually uh, brutally honest, uh, often because the songwriter is facing brutal adversity. And yet in the midst of the anguish in these psalms of lament, the singer will still uh, find that he can submit his fear and his worry and his angst to God and rest in the truth that God's going to act on his or her behalf. And so today we're going to learn not only how to lament biblically by looking at Psalm 22, but we're going to look at an even deeper picture uh, of what this psalm is really about. I like what Ligonier Ministry says about lament. Uh, on the screen it says, the laments in Scripture do more than just voice painful emotions the Psalms of Lament, in particular, go further than just releasing pent-up emotions. It's not just venting and, like, raging. They are more than mere catharsis. Within themselves, these Psalms are a theology, a doxology, a form of worship. They are reminders of truth. They're exercises in faith. They are transformative for the believer. And there is much that we can learn from them. So though we're going to be reading these verses that seem to be describing David's difficult uh, situation and, and come to an understanding of how to voice our lament, uh, honestly, there's much more happening in this psalm. Uh, and so uh, we're going to read it together um, now, actually. And so what I'd like to do is uh, quickly give you the outline uh, so you can take notes. And then in a moment, I'm going to have a stand uh, because this is one of the most reverential of psalms. We'll stand it, we'll read through all of it, uh, then we'll pray and we'll dive in. So here's the outline. Um, if we're going to outline this whole psalm, you'll see the psalmist struggling from within in verses 1 through 10. There's, a, there's an internal battle happening. And then in verses 11 through 20, you're going to see the suffering on the outside, that there's an external force coming against him. And so he's suffering uh, from without. And then finally, not to leave him there, we have verses 21 through 31, which gives a great picture of salvation from above. 
And in the study that we'll do, we'll see that David seemed to be rescued, and yet there's more going on under the surface as we look at it. So let's go ahead and stand, and we're going to read Psalm 22. I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Let's stand as we open the Scriptures. Psalm 22 has a heading to the choir master according to the doe of the dawn, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God." Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and my, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my you lay me. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death." For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this great passage of Scripture, this uh, reverent and awe-filled passage. We pray that, Lord, you would speak by your Spirit and equip and, and help us to learn what you would have us learn. 
Speak to our hearts, we ask, in the name above all names, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. may be seated. Elizabeth Barrett Browning wrote these words in her poem called Cowper's Grave. She wrote this, deserted. God could separate from his own essence, rather, and Adam's sins have swept between the righteous son and father. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphan cry, his universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless, my God, I am forsaken. It went up from the holy lips amid his lost creation that of the lost no son should use those words of desolation. And yet, that's exactly how the psalmist perceives his situation in Psalm 22. And so I want us to begin by looking at this first section, struggling from within. And if you look at verse 1, he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then yet, in verse 3, uh, he states, Yet you're holy, you're, you're worship, you're trusted by generations before me. They trusted you, they weren't disappointed. But then in verse 6, he says, but, but I'm not like the others. I'm less than a man. People have cast me out and they're mocking me for my faith. But then in verse 9, he comes to a resolve and he says, Yet I've trusted in you since I was conceived. I have always and I will always trust you. In these verses, these first 11 or so verses, there is a struggle that's happening in the psalmist, a mental, spiritual back and forth. Uh, There's the plight that he's experiencing uh, in front of him experientially, and it seems contrary to what he knows regarding God theologically. And so no matter what we read David enduring, notice that he begins by saying, my God, my God. In other words, no matter what trials he's enduring, he can still say at the end of the day, yet you slay me, I'll still trust you. You're still my God. I still have faith in you, um, and you're a personal God to be experienced, not afar and conceptually, but real and true and intimate and in a personal way. God is not a God. He's not their God. He's my God. But notice in verse 1, he says, why have you forsaken me and why are you so far from saving me? David uh, has two things that are wrong here. First, David is assuming that God has forsaken him, but he's also assuming that God is not near to him. But we know differently, don't we? We know that scripture tells us that, first of all, God will never forsake his children. We know that. Uh, And and secondly, we know that God is near to the brokenhearted. So one of the temptations that we suffer from in the midst of struggle is that sometimes we can be tempted to then believe, well, maybe God is not good. Maybe God's afar off. And that seems to be uh, what David is considering here. Uh, If you missed our series through the book of Habakkuk, I want to encourage you to go back and listen to that where we kind of talk through what it looks like to have faith even when God seems to be doing something we don't like or we don't necessarily agree with. Uh, Here, uh, David needs to know that God is near. God will never leave. God will never forsake. But look at verse 5 with me. Notice that in verse 5 he says, uh, or actually verse 4, he says, yet... Verse 3, you are holy, in you our fathers trusted, yet you're holy. In other words, David is remembering, though he got some things wrong, he's remembering that God in his attributes is holy, and God in his faithfulness will continue to come through. God is holy. He has 
um, in his intrinsic worth and value, God is true, God is good. And yet God is also faithful uh, to his people. David doesn't forget that. Even though he's going back and forth in this trial, uh, he's not forgetting. He's remembering his theology, and he's remembering God's proven history. And then we get to verse 6. We're just kind of skimming through. But verse 6, he says, But I am a worm and not a man. So what's interesting here is that David seems to be excluding himself from the people of Israel. He's almost saying, I'm less than a man. I don't belong to the people who have seen God's faithfulness. I'm less than them. Uh, I'm a person of reproach. I think it's difficult enough when we're enduring hardship, but it's even more difficult when it seems like we're rejected even from other people. When, when we're down, it's bad, but it's even more difficult when people kick us while we're down. I saw a meme this week. I don't know if we have a picture of it, but it said it's normal to be kicked while you're down, but it's just sad when your friends join in. <laughs> Sometimes that happens. Your friends see you when you're down, and they just kick you. And often what happens is when uh, people see suffering in our lives, um, they try to cast blame on those of us who are suffering and say, well, the reason is probably some type of sin in your life, and that could be. Um, But um, in a broader way, they don't see God's glory being displayed in their life. And that happened with the disciples and Jesus in John chapter 9. And so ultimately, David is not forgetting, but he's actually seen himself less than the children of Israel. He says in verse 7, all who see me mock me, and they make mouths at me, and they wag their heads, and they taunt him, saying, well, he trusts in the Lord. So obviously, the Lord has to deliver him. He's in a situation that it's unsavable. So God's got to be the one to save him. And this is a picture of mocking him. Uh, And yet, he says in verse 9, yet, even though that's true and I'm experiencing that, what do I know is true about God? I trust him even from the very moment of Uh, conception. I've always trusted him. Even in the womb, he's been faithful to me. And so David is reminding himself through these various verses uh, of remembering, even from his own experience, of God's faithful provision. So he goes theologically and even in theory a little bit more intimately to personal experience and says, I've seen this. Now, our personal experiences should not define our theology ever, but they can help us reflect on God's goodness when we look at our theology and say, I'm experiencing that, and I know that's true. And so God's track record, doctrinally, historically, experientially, should remind even the most troubled of servants like David here uh, that God will come to our rescue in due time. Now, he may be the God of the 11th hour, many of us experience that, but he still will never fail to show his glory. Verse 1 should be very familiar to you. When you read verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, For the well-read Christian, there should be kind of an alert that goes off. You should get a notification in your mind and go, wait a minute, that's familiar. I've seen this somewhere before. It's familiar to us because that's exactly what Jesus quoted from the cross. The Jews who were gathered there at at the spectacle to spectate the crucifixion of Jesus, would have recognized these words coming off of the mouth of Jesus, probably coming out very labored and slow. And they would have said and began to recite in their minds, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you been so far? They would begin to recite in their minds Psalm 22. In fact, this is very fascinating to me this week in study. Many of the early believers had kind of this idea 
maybe from eyewitness account, we don't have it in the Bible, so I can't verify this, but I think it's interesting at least, fascinating, that much of the early church had this thought that Jesus began quoting Psalm 22 under his breath all the way to Psalm 31.5, where it says, into your hands I commit my spirit. And so this weekend, I read through much of those psalms with that maybe possibility in mind, and it was, it was just an incredible, worshipful experience to see Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, and, and some of those other passages, if that is indeed what Jesus did. But why did Jesus quote Psalm 22, verse 1, out loud? Why did he do that? Uh, was he struggling with feeling forsaken? What's happening here? Uh, John MacArthur says this. I like this. He says, now let me hasten to add that this is not a lapse of faith. This is not broken confidence. This is a cry of disorientation because Jesus Christ was so used to God's familiar protective presence. He was so used to the fact that the Father was there. And now all of a sudden the Father's presence on the cross is withdrawn. And in the disorientation, Jesus, he cries out as the enemy closes in and the eternally sinless one bears all the sins of all of history. In that moment, we know that the sun goes dark. There's darkness over uh, Israel. And Jesus, at that moment, is, is bearing the full wrath of God against sin. Now, with that in mind, with specifically the cross in mind, let's look at our second section now, suffering from without. Look at verse 11. He says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Trouble's near. He's saying, God, you're not near, but trouble is. Trouble's right on my doorstep. Now, this is the part of the lament, if you're taking note, this is the part of the lament where you begin with a complaint, but then the second part is where you you give a specific ask. You're asking God specifically for help. It's not just a general whining. It's saying, God, I don't understand this. I'm going through this difficult situation. Now, Lord, please intervene on my behalf in this specific way. You begin crying out and then specifically ask God for help. And in this case, David seems to be enduring some interesting predicaments. In fact, verses 11 through 20 are a graphic description specifically of a Roman crucifixion. But here's what's fascinating. These words were written 1,000 years or so before uh, anyone even dreamed up the awful method of torture and execution we call crucifixion. So rather than trying to interpret verses 11 through 20 uh, as the sort of difficulty that David was experiencing, and, and, the, and there, was, there were some weird things that were happening here. I mean, if you look at it, he seems to be experiencing loneliness, Uh, oppression. He's focusing on his despair and fear and thirst. There's fatigue and exhaustion and starvation. There seems to be, in verse 14, heart failure. Then his, his clothing is taken from him, so there's nakedness and there's even robbery. And so rather than saying, here's what happened in David's life, what I want us to do is interpret these verses from the perspective of a Roman crucifixion. But first we'll have the near fulfillment and the interpretation of what David went through. Notice verse 11. He says, be not far from me. Uh, And then he says in verse 12, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan. Okay, go ahead and circle that word Bashan. Bashan was a, a district on the east side of the Jordan and it was really well known for fertilized um, kind of landscape, lots of fertile um, crops and big, strong, uh, different types of 
uh, well-fed animals. And so he says these bulls of Bashan, bulls, of course, known for their strength, he's describing most likely uh, the children of Israel. In Amos 4.1, the Israelites who fattened themselves on luxury were known as the cows of Bashan. So it's very likely that this is describing the fellow Jews who are kind of fattening themselves in luxury. They're very strong. They've got some type of might, and they're surrounding the singer with threats to tear him apart. They're, he calls them bulls and lions. They're too fierce and powerful to defeat. Now, is this a picture of Saul coming against David? When did David ever experience this? In fact, the similes in verses 14 and 15 describe physical torment and anguish. Notice that he says in verse 14, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. It's interesting. Uh, This is a picture of not just suffering, but of the nearness of death. If you've ever been with a loved one who has experienced death, you're near them, and in that moment, right near the end. That's kind of what this is, is describing. This is not just a little struggle that he went through. This is the nearness of death. Now, when did David experience this? We have no biblical accounts of this exact scenario happening to David anywhere in our Bibles. Notice verse 15. He says, you lay me in the dust of death. I think that's a great picture of God's sovereignty, even in the midst of calamity and even in our death. See, part of the curse of Adam was that we come from dust and we return to dust. And so God is mindful that we're composed of probably just a few elements and and we're fragile, we're dust. And the days that we exist from dust to dust are still in his hand. God is still the one at work. But then we get to verse 16 and verse 16 seems to be describing a different group of people. Notice that it says, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. Uh, Now, this is a different group, it seems to be, from the bulls of Bashan. This is a different group. Uh, This is a group of, he calls them dogs. Now, I know from a recent sermon how much shoreliners love their dogs, okay? You guys were very clear on that. You love your dogs. Um, So I have to point out that when he says dogs here, these are not the cute family members that you dress up at Halloween like Chewbacca, okay? That's not the idea here. Um, Those people certainly kept dogs as pets in Israel. The idea is that they're more like scavengers. And so the Jews actually um, would call the pagan Gentiles around them dogs. If you've been to a third world country, you know that you don't pet the dogs. They're the scavengers. They're on the fringe of the dump. And that's kind of what the Jews would call, they would, how they would classify Gentiles. So David here is describing not just being surrounded by his own people who are mocking him and wagging their heads at him and, and deriding him, but also now there's a group of outsiders, of Gentiles, that are fully encircling him. And notice what they're doing. They're, they're piercing his hands and feet. When did that happen to David? He recounts being so emaciated that his bones are protruding and they're over him. These people are towering over him. They take his clothing and they begin betting. They cast lots, our equivalent of throwing dice or rock, paper, scissors. They're betting on his clothing and dividing it up. But notice that David, in verse 19, returns to God to ask him for help. He says in verse Uh, 19, be not far off. Oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And then he says that you are my help. 
In other words, God is not afar off. He wants to, be, to identify as our help. Not as quick as we would sometimes like, but he's our help nonetheless. And, and so then in the final section, um, David begins to recount God's hand of salvation coming to his rescue. But before we get to that, I want us to look at this section, this middle section, 11 through 20, this time with the understanding that we, like I've just mentioned a few times, we don't see this scenario happening anywhere in the life of David. But we do see it four times in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in our New Testaments. I want us to break seven situations down that happen right here in these verses, and I want to see them from the perspective of the crucifixion. I'm going to put them all on the screen. You can take a picture or take notes from this. But notice back, zooming all the way back to verse 1, the first idea is in verse 1 where he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, of course, is what Jesus quoted in Matthew 27 and in Mark 15. Jesus quotes that, so his hearers, uh, the second words, and would have referenced back to this psalm. Uh, the second idea is in verse 8. This is, of course, David quoting the people around him, the bulls of Bashan, the people that are in Israel who are mocking him. Okay, and it's interesting that that exact phrase was what the religious leaders quoted in Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. The religious leaders quoted, seemingly, Psalm 22, which is written, prophesied about them. Very interesting. They actually said, well, he trusts in the Lord. Let him, let Jehovah deliver Jesus. Let Jehovah rescue Jesus, for he delights in him. Well, the third idea is found in verse 7, where it says that they wag their heads at me. Again, Matthew 27, 43 tells us that the passers-by, the, the Jews were walking by, and they wagged their heads. They shook their heads. They called out in derision against him. It's also noted in Mark 15. I think it's fascinating, the fourth idea in verse 14, where we see that uh, my heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. Uh, we know later in John 19, 34, John gets this account uh, where the Roman soldier, uh, basically after the earthquake, strikes Jesus uh, and blood and water flow. The scientists, the medical professionals would say that when you pierce someone's side after a crucifixion, and it's not just blood that flows, but blood and water, that's a picture of the pericardium, the kind of fluid-filled sac around the heart, that that's ruptured. So the heart has basically um, been completely, overwhelmingly kind of shredded. So the heart actually is like dissolved. The pericardium breaks and water and blood flow out. It's a picture of a heart being like wax, a melting. Very interesting. Uh, verse 16, the fifth idea, is that dogs encompass me. Of course, we know Matthew 27, 27 through 31 gives us a very, very detailed description of the Roman soldiers coming around surrounding Jesus. Uh, they encompassed him. They surround him. They look down upon him. Uh, verse 16, the sixth idea is that they pierced my hands and my feet. Of course, Luke 24, 39, at the resurrection or after the resurrection, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says, uh, behold, look at my hands and my feet. If you've understood a crucifixion, you know they pierce your hands and your feet. Uh, David describes that. But the seventh idea is that uh, all four Gospels pick this up, that they divided my garments among them. In fact, John actually says this is a fulfillment of Psalm 22, that these Roman soldiers divided up his last human belongings, uh, cast lots for them, and stole them. This section, this psalm is a gory and graphic description 
that David prophetically sings of what the coming Messiah would suffer at the hands of godless men. So, so what will happen? Is God going to leave his child to suffer and die with no purpunity? Well, let's look at this third section, salvation from above. Look at verse 21 with me. David says, save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And then he says in verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers, and in the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Verse 21 is a reference back to the lions, the bulls of Bashan. And he says, God, save me from them. And then in verse 22, notice it changes tone, doesn't it? It's like heavy, and he's oppressed, and he's crying out. And then suddenly, there's this change of tone where now he's going to spread the name of God to the people of God. He's going to praise him publicly. And so in David's case, follow with me, church. In David's case, he was saved. God came and rescued him from this situation, from this plight. God plucked him out and saved him. God rescued him. Uh, So for David, that's awesome. And in verse 23, there's kind of three expected responses from God's people. He says, hey, you who fear the Lord, you should praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, you should glorify him. And thirdly, you should stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Well, why? Why can we worship and glorify and stand in awe of him? Because of verse 24. Uh, He says, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. God's not embarrassed by the calamity of his people. He's not kind of ignoring the plight. Oh, that's hard to watch. I don't want to keep an eye on that. No, he's, he's not uh, despised or abhorred our affliction. He's heard, he's answered, and he's saved. So though a song of lament takes place in real time, like you're in the midst of that lament, you're in the midst of that suffering, that difficulty, that desperation, it doesn't always end there, does it? Often the resolve comes not right in the moment, but later, much later. We wish God would intervene in the moment. And sometimes we have to go through that difficulty, through that storm. The psalmist, though, can look back maybe years later with reflection, and he can see God did come through. But it may not have been immediate. We know it wasn't for the Son of God. The apologist Greg Kukul says this in this passage. He says, Jesus is basically saying, here I cry out to you, and I'm not being rescued. I'm the subject of your wrath, not the subject of your rescue. You see, Jesus was the subject of God's wrath that we might be the subject of God's rescue. But in the end, though the suffering was real and it was experienced, the salvation was also real. And so David acknowledges, hey, God saved me. Look at verse 25. This is probably much later. He says, from you praise comes my praise in the great congregation. In other words, he's now identifying here with the people of God. Praise is coming. He's looking forward to that moment of worshiping again with God's people. Goodness of God. I look forward to those moments every week when we can gather together with the people of God and just celebrate the goodness of God and sometimes celebrate the salvation, the rescue of God from our despair. Uh, And even though David was rejected by the people of God, notice the second half of verse 25. He says, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. And so he may have been let down by the company of Israel, 
but he's resolved to still keep the vows that he's made to God, even in the company of believers around him. Now, that's not as easy as I just described it. (laughs) It's not always easy when people disappoint us in church to hang in there with those people. What happens? Well, those people really let me down, and so I'm not going to worship in the congregation with them. I'm out of here. But happy is the man or woman who allows iron to sharpen them and continues to gather together with the people of God and submit to the Word of God. He says, I'm going to keep my vows even when people let me down. I'm going to keep my vows. In verse 26, notice there's this satisfaction and reality of eternal life. He says, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. There's this picture of eternal life. Why? Because of the suffering of the afflicted one. And because of that, he says in verse 27, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. Uh, Verse 27 is a reminder that salvation will extend to all people groups. We know from Philippians 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. So every knee formed by God's creative hand, angelic or otherwise, will bow before him. I don't know if angels have knees. I think they do. They will bow before God. Every tongue crafted by the art and might of of the Trinitarian God will confess Jesus as Lord. And he says even the one who wants to extend his earthly life to try to avoid the judgment will eventually meet death and he will worship God. And so the psalmist rests in the truth in these last few verses that people will continue to tell others of the faithfulness of God and what God has done. Powerful, amazing psalm. And we're just giving a quick survey of it today for time, but I want us to just look at the last verse, Psalm twenty-two, thirty-one. He said, it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation, they shall come and proclaim, they shall proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Go ahead and circle that last phrase, that he has done it. This is awesome. Uh, This is a Hebrew phrase that he has accomplished it. And when you take that Hebrew phrase and you translate it into Greek, it's one word. The word is tetelestai. If you recognize that word, tetelestai is the word that means It means finished. It means paid in full. It means complete. It's tetelestai that Jesus uh, cried out in victory from the cross as he died. He said, it is finished. It's these exact words. Now, I want to remind you, church, that Jesus did not from the cross say, it has begun. Okay? Uh, and so then I need to add to his work of atonement. No, the work has been completed. And so as these are the closing words of this psalm, they're also the last words of the Lord when he expired on the cross. And they're the words that are written over every believer. They're written over every list of sin uh, that you can produce against yourself or against others. These words, uh, it is finished, it is done, are written over every charge against the elect. It is written, he has done it. And now we opened our service today talking about Hebrews chapter 2. And uh, the writer of Hebrews quotes verse 22 of uh, Psalm 22 in Hebrews 2. Look at this on the screen. It says, But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, 
so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, and here's a quote from Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. I love this. After the resurrection, Jesus now calls us brothers. We're part of the family of God by faith. So what should our response be? I want to take a moment and just apply this psalm. And I encourage you to go back and meditate on it this week, read it, digest it, spend time considering the cross. But to apply this, first, to understand what it means to lament, uh, we have a clear understanding that, listen, it's acceptable to bring our laments to the Lord. I'm reading a book right now. Our elders are reading a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Uh, we have it available at the Resource Center. Uh, fantastic book that kind of talks about how we should and can bring our uh, difficulties and our complaints, our cries to the Lord. And then we ask him specifically to work on our behalf. But we don't, say, we don't stay stuck there. Uh, we rise up in faith and we trust that he's going to be faithful to his name. So maybe some of you are experiencing that right now. You maybe have just said, you know, I'm not supposed to, you know, struggle and kind of bring that to the Lord. I'm just supposed to kind of grin and bear it. Maybe you've misunderstood verses where it says, count it all joy. And you're like, I'm just supposed to smile when I'm suffering and when I'm close to death. I, I want you to have a full biblical understanding of lamenting. And so maybe you're in that position, you're in that place. But church, the only acceptable response of those who fear God is two things from this passage. It's to praise him and it's to proclaim him. I want to break each one of these down. First, in light of what we've just quickly read, it's only right to praise and to thank him. And that's what he does. At the last portion of this psalm, he just breaks forth into this doxology, this overflow. And our worship should be an overflow of our gratitude for a God who has been faithful to his name. He's been faithful to his people. More specifically, our worship should contain a heart of robust theology, which is who he is. It should have a heart of robust history as we sing. We should be able to proclaim this is what he's done specifically. This is how he's been faithful. And our worship should have a heart of robust experience. In other words, here's how he's specifically shown his attributes and his faithfulness in my life. In other words, this isn't just theory, like I'm going to sing this song. This is a great song. I don't know what it's about. There's something about an Ebenezer, and I'm not sure what that is, but I'm sure it's something important. No, this is something where we can say, I have experienced the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God, even in the midst of despair and sin. I've been crushed. And yet, God's son was crushed for me, and I've experienced uh, the blessing of salvation. That's why I think the longer we're alive, the more, the more our worship should deepen. Now, what I don't mean by that is that we get more rigid as we, even in our posture. I'm not saying we're more contained, like I'm more mature now, I'm deeper in my worship. That's not what I mean by that. In fact, I actually believe when we look at Scripture, it tells us to bow down, to lift our voice, to lift our hands, to clap. Like, so to me, 
uh, if we're actually growing in maturity, that means we have more years, more experiences with the Lord to worship and thank Him, more time that He's proven Himself faithful. And, and so our worship should deepen. That doesn't mean deep worship, you don't lift your hands, you don't clap. I, I think on the contrary, there's more to give Him praise for. Uh, I like what John Piper said. He said, God is glorified in worship, not only by those who come full, but also by those who come desperately needy. See, every week we gather together here, and there should be a deep sense of desperation mingled with overflowing delight. Man, if you come here, I'm sorry, if you come here and you're just kind of humming the words along on the screen, and you're kind of like, yeah, that was an okay message. You know, he wasn't really on it today. I do like his jacket. But, man, he's just, he's just not on it today. And, you know, um, what are we doing for lunch? I don't know. Let's go out. And that's it. That's the extent of your worship experience. Rather than coming and saying, I'm coming before a holy God, and I'm desperate, and I'm in great need. I'm a sinner in need of his saving grace. Without the understanding of the wrath of God, how can we truly understand the grace and mercy of God? And so there should be this desperate uh, sense also mixed with delight that I am completely sunk without the mercies of God. And so, uh, oh Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for choosing me, for setting me apart, for being there with me in the midst of despair and difficulty. As David praises God, and even as the Son gives the Father glory by taking what was His and making it known, that's also the work of the Holy Spirit, we too should break forth into triumphant doxology to the Lord for his mercies in Christ. That should just be a normal thing. That shouldn't be weird where we come to church and just say, I, I can't contain the joy uh, that God uh, has been so faithful in my life. So we're not just to praise him, though. We're also to proclaim him. This la very last section, there's this great concept that there's telling a new generation who God is and what he's done. I think it's interesting. Every generation is responsible for our generation uh, of souls. I think Keith Green used to say that. Every generation is responsible for your generation of souls. And I know ultimately God is. I'm not trying to make a theological statement. But we're responsible to get the good news out. And I don't mean generation like Gen X, millennials, boomers. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, the idea is if we fail to share the gospel in our day, in our generation, then we're only one generation away from seeing the gospel uh, snuffed out. And we know that won't happen. But when we consider the, uh, the task that's unfinished, the current status of global missions, uh, we should be actually resolute. Uh, just looking up some stats this week, according to the Center for the Study of Global Christianity, and there's actually a lesson in the Perspectives course, which is fantastic. Uh, their lesson is called The Task Remaining. 2,000 years after Jesus said, go and make disciples, only 2.4% of our missionaries are going to the three billion people who have never yet even heard the good news uh, of the kingdom for the first time. 2.4% of our missionaries uh, are only going to that percentage. There's currently 6,900 of the 16,000 people groups in the world that are still considered unreached with the gospel. Little or no access to the gospel. So there's a huge task remaining. Uh, the Gettys wrote this song. I think we've done it before. Fantastic song. It's called Facing a Task Unfinished. And here's the words. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease. 
We who rejoice to know thee, renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. I think it's interesting. David says, I'm going to fulfill the vow. And we, in, in like manner, uh, have a mission here at Shoreline. Our mission is to win, disciple. Anyone know what the third one is? To send, to send people. And I'm so excited to be a part of a church that's a sending church. I'm excited to be going with a team uh, in but September to Minneapolis with Engage Global. Excited about that. We're going to be trained for global missions. But here at Shoreline, our focus globally, as we just heard from Mackenzie, it's church planting and reaching the most unreached people groups in the world. Locally, our focus on outreach is going to be dialed up in the next few months. So if you have been interested and excited about doing more local outreach, you'll see that dialing up. Uh, but, but even if the church isn't organizing missions, we still have a responsibility individually to go and make disciples of all nations. And we can do that even here today. We can leave today on mission, proclaiming Christ to our children, proclaiming Christ to our coworkers, proclaiming Christ to the people around us that we have a burden for. Uh, all uh, one day, all of the ends of the earth will know that Jesus is Lord. And I can't wait uh, to be with that great company uh, to proclaim the Lordship of Christ together. Now, as we close, I want to invite the worship team forward, and uh, we're going to be singing uh, a song to close out the sermon, um, but we're going to be passing out our elements uh, during the song. And this month, I want to do some things a little bit different with communion. We mix it up every now and then. This time, as you receive the elements, hold on to them, and in a moment, we'll sing this song. Just hang on to them. Uh, I'm going to share a few words, and I, I want there to be a time of prayer, confession, uh, just a time of, of consideration of the cross, uh, kind of reflecting today on what Jesus has done. And then you take the bread and the cup, um, maybe with your spouse, maybe with your family, just at your own time, and then I'll, I'll close us in that time of prayer uh, by uh, just bringing the whole church together before the Lord. But as we close, I want to draw your attention to verse 6. Verse 6 says, David says, I am a worm and not a man. I'm a worm and not a man. Now, why would he say that? Warren Wiersbe calls this the other I am statement of Jesus. In other words, Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I am the gate of the sheep. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, this is the lost I am statement. Why would he say this is an I am statement? I am a worm. I think it's fascinating that in Israel... There's what's known as the crimson worm. I was reading this week, uh, gospel power and a simple scientific reality. Just, it was amazing. One creation science article says this about the crimson worm. It says, usually in the Bible, the Hebrew word for worm is rimah, which means maggot. But the Hebrew word that Jesus used, that David used here, Psalm 22 is tola, which is the scarlet worm, the crimson worm. And of course, both scarlet and crimson are the colors of blood. The crimson worm, Caucus illicus, is a very special worm that looks more like a grub than a worm. And when it's time for the female or the mother crimson worm to have babies, she only does it once in her life, she climbs a tree and she fastens to that tree. In fact, she fastens so hard to it that she's permanently stuck to the wood and the shell that forms around her can never be removed without tearing her body apart and killing her. The crimson worm then lays her eggs under her body in the protective shell, 
And when the baby worms or larvae hatch, they stay protected under the shell. Not only does the mother's body protect them, but it also provides them with food for the babies begin to feast on, they begin to feed on the living body of the mother. After a few days, the young worms grow to the point they're able to take care of themselves, the article says, and at that point, the mother dies. And as the mother crimson worm dies, she begins to ooze a crimson or scarlet red dye, which not only stains the wood of the tree, but also stains the young offspring. The worms are colored scarlet red for the rest of their lives. Fascinating, but the article says, after around three days, the dead mother crimson worm's body will lose its crimson color and begin to turn into a white wax which flakes off of the tree like snow. Isn't it interesting? Is it any coincidence that in Isaiah chapter 1, the prophet says, the same prophet who describes the cross in Isaiah 53, he says, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Because of what Christ, a fulfillment of Psalm 22, a fulfillment of the Tola has done. He was crushed for us in our sins. We have life. We are forever stained crimson because he gave his life for us at Calvary. And our sins are now white as snow. And so church, may we praise him. May we proclaim him all of our days. Amen. Father, we thank you for Jesus. As a church body, we come together as we want to, in just a few moments, partake of the bread and cup. We acknowledge the grace of God in Christ. And we thank you for what Jesus did for us. We now turn our attention to you. And Lord, we thank you for the grace that has been given to us. It's in Christ's name alone that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Lakewood Ranch YMCA. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.